you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike, and welcome to the podcast. This is Down East Mike, episode number 89, news and commentary for May 20th, 2023. Our motto here is, some of this is whimsy, some of this is true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. It is Saturday, right? Saturday, May 20th. Where did the month of May go? It is flying along. We should mention also that uh, the Down East Mike podcast contains no mean words, just wholesome goodness from Down East Maine, a historical literary auditory candy store. And we asked, did you notice that the bells were ringing on the door when you came in? In today's episode, we have Lindy flying the Atlantic from May 20th, 1927, a May snowstorm from 1892, a Bangor dentist given a sparrow CPR, and that was in 1892, and you've never had, you've probably never seen a sparrow get CPR, swimming wolves with funky DNA, that's the honorary main mammal of the moment, we have the illness of the instant, and much more coming up in the podcast today, if you're new to the podcast, we're just kind of, it's not all serious, it's, uh, we do the news and stuff, but mainly we just look at, uh, the headlines of today and we go through the 70s and then back to the 1800s and you find that nothing has changed the conflicts are the same and the solutions are the same people are the same but we like to look at the differences in the headlines because they're somewhat subtle uh we're going around the world right now oh. nebraska police arrest six at the state capitol including the woman who punched the trooper and admitted an abortion and trans debate. Lauren Boebert slams Fetterman's unbecoming fashion choice for Senate press conference. Fetterman wore a, a hoodie to a press conference. Uh, DeSantis would beat Biden in Georgia, says a new poll. Okay. I guess he'd have to beat Trump first, maybe. Uh, U.S. military thought it had killed a senior Al-Qaeda leader in a drone strike but now officials are saying that they made a mistake that's where they need that ai to do some fact checking for them a chicago area man whose life sentence was commuted by obama has been charged with attempted murder and consumers are creeped out by targets tuck friendly women's swimwear they say that they're going to shop elsewhere and Beyonce and Jay-Z bought a $200 million house in California. I saw that house. It's on the beach and all. Well, that's nice, but there's no dock. No place to put a boat. I don't know what. There's no, there's no functionality there. Main headlines. The main medical cannabis industry slows while recreational adult use grows. Smoking the wacky tobacco, huh? Uh, deputies uh, are saying that they, a domestic violence suspect hid 
in a main blueberry field for several days. What a wonderful place to hide. You could have eat blueberries, it'd be quiet, just a little bird singing. All the while they look for you. I wonder if they find them with a drone. Maine officials confirmed the first Powassan virus death in 2023. And that unfortunate man got bit by a tick. The Frankmobile, Oscar Meyer's Frankmobile, was spotted taking a ride on a ferry in Maine. They always have height restrictions with that thing. Okay, those are the headlines. So let's look at, uh, we'll go to the illness of the instant in just a second, but let's look at a word of the day. We needed to have a word to, to break us out of the, the word wordless uh, time that we'd gone through. Ascendant, A-S-C-E-N-D-E-N-T. It can be an adjective or a noun. Uh, the adjective version of ascendant would be tendon or directed upward or moving or going or growing upward. And the noun version would be ascendant, uh, such as someone from whom you are descended, but usually more remote than a grandparent. What could be more remote than a grandparent, especially these days, uh, from the Middle English ascendant, from the me medieval Latin ascendant, A-S-C-E-N-D-E-N-S, back from the 14th century. Some of the other words that were used at that time were accordance, a brooch, abridged, uh, a cold, acceptable, Acceptable wasn't around until then in print. Isn't that something? Uh, how about another sentence with it? As the nation recovers, an ascendant right wing blames the crisis on China. I think ascendant probably a powerful word. We, uh, If we looked at... Um, oh, and we have one more sentence here. In an age of ascendant nationalism and great power rivalry, where the United States itself is waging trade wars... Where does globalism go? And then we needed to look at our illness of the instant is hill climbers huff. In hill climbers huff, you've probably, you, if it hasn't manifested itself in you, maybe with a companion, you notice it when you're going uphill and that hill climbers huff may start out as a little wheeze, but then by the time you're at the top of the hill, it definitely becomes a huff. The hill climbers huff and that uh, it, it's, it could be a full body huff or it could be just a little bit of a huff and you could say um, for example if you were on a hike and one person went off on their own you would say they left in a huff that would be a hill climbers huff now, once again like so many other illnesses on the instant there's no immediate remedy on it although some of the large pharmaceutical companies are working on a pill for it that would take it away or at least alleviate it somewhat at this time there's no known cure and the only thing that you can do to um, at least minimize the effects of hill climbers huff is just not walk so many hills okay let's look at uh we gotta get right to our stories this would be from 1970, the year 1970. Now, in the year 1970, there was a lot going on, of course, the Vietnam War. But they, it, one of the big stories at that time was they were looking back 43 years ago on from May 20th. They were looking back 43 years. And they're talking about uh, Charles Lindbergh's flight across 
the Atlantic, and the story goes something like this in a drizzling rain on May 20th, more than 43 years ago, prior to 1970, an attractive-looking boy, aged 25, tall, quiet, self-composed, walked up to a frail, silvery little thing with the word Spirit of St. Louis painted on its size. Charles A. Lindbergh had designed it himself. Wing spread, 45 feet, one motor, 200 horsepower, at a top speed of 130 miles per hour. It would have to carry him and all his hopes 3,600 miles to capture the prize for the first non-stop flight to Paris. To the boy, it looks like now or never. Quietly and alone, he decides it's now. There are two small cockpit windows, but strangely, no way to see forward except for a tiny periscope. I did not know that. He could only look over the side. After an agonizing takeoff from the heavy, soggy field, and a near disaster from some power lines, Lindbergh and the handiwork on which he has staked his life are lost in the billows of black clouds over the Atlantic. An unknown American boy is in the air, and a great surgeon, hopeful, marvelous, and mysterious hunch sweeps our land and tells the hearts of the whole nation that he will make it. And this fellow goes on, I've known the I have known with affection this remarkable man, how totally immersed in conversation matters, and many years and recently spent an evening with him. In his subdued and gentle way, he told me of his predecessors. He said that six months after Royal Flying Captain John Elcock and his navigator became the first men to fly the Atlantic, Elcock was crushed, uh, crashed in Normandy and was killed, and Brown, who was the navigator, never in his lifetime flew again. So Lindbergh had no wireless. He was last seen as he was going off by fog-bound fishing craft off of Newfoundland, flying low, as low as 20 feet above the water. The more you read about it, the crazier this whole journey seems. But further ahead of the dense, icy fog is solid, and the roaring ocean is covered with great white Gibraltars of ice that toss in the furrows and beat back the terrible fury of the sea. There's a lot of dramatic writing there. The next morning, a freighter skipper reports that he thought he heard a motor in the night, but it died. The ship is searching. It is now more than 30 hours since this boy reached for his destiny. Now, I ask you what 25-year-old today would design a plane and fly it across the Atlantic like that. Lindbergh told me that the first land he saw was Dingle, Ireland. He recognized it on from his map, um, the cape called the Ring of Kerry, with Killarney on the left, and he knew that the tiny 1,400 population town was Dingle. Later in the second day of flight, reports flowed in to jam the airwaves of the whole world. Lindbergh is flying over the English Channel, flying high and striking the continent now at Cherbourg. Our entire nation stops Stands, listens, and waits, and a new night falls in Europe. Word comes that beams are raised in a blaze of guidance from every searchlight in the whole of France. And then the flash from United Press, Lindbergh is in Paris. Delirious Parisians sweep the boy from the field in a sea of cheers as he steps from the plain at Le Bourgeau, modest, quiet, and alone. 
This was a great human moment. Who, who's still alive under our broad star-spangled sky can forget that moment. The nation's nearly incredible response was the clear, clear voice of our country's inner self, always just waiting to be given half a chance to show that the country's true spirit, the spirit of the silent majority, if you wish, is still there. He goes on and on about that. But he flew across. We had another story. He actually had a main connection. Uh, Ellie's Fellows White wrote of seeing Charles Lindbergh in Old Orchard Beach on July 25th, 1927. He was taking like a victory lap tour across the U.S. This was two months after his flight across the Atlantic. He never looked at the crowd, nor did he betray the slightest consciousness of an audience. He stood looking out to sea with the surf tumbling and cool green rollers at his feet and the wind blowing his hair. He picked up a handful of seaweed and tossed it in the air to show the direction of the wind, then walked slowly back to the hangar. It was over an hour before he ceased tinkering with the plane in the darkness of the hangar, and then I saw him signing autographs on the rear of it. She wrote that he had to wait for low tide, Old Orchard Beach, and for the sand to harden before he could take off for his next stop. The police officers tried to move the crowd away. And again, this is from an eyewitness in 1927. Finally, White wrote, Lindbergh snatched a megaphone and shouted through it, but the people surged not away from but toward him until he threw the megaphone down in disgust. Lindbergh got the propeller moving. There was a roar and a blur, and he climbed in. It moved smoothly over the sand, and in no distance at all, hardly more than a hundred yards, it was in the air. He tipped and banked and turned, swooping low over the beach, and then rose like a silver-winged bird against the blue sky. July 25th, 1927, Old Orchard Beach. Isn't that something, Charles Lindbergh? And then we saw uh, a further story. Lindy, as the press had nicknamed him, was already overwhelmed by all the attention when he flew to Maine two months after his record-breaking journey. A man had been killed by an unruly crowd during his public appearance on the Boston Common on July 22, 1927. And that tragedy was fresh in his mind as thousands gathered to see him land his famous monoplane at Scarborough, Maine Airport. But the pea soup fog obscured the runway for two days, and that's when he was finally forced to land uh, at the less secure Old Orchard Beach airstrip. And after dutifully fulfilling several promotional obligations to the massive crowds in Maine, Lindy made his way back to his plane at Old Orchard Beach, and that's when he found the mob pressing up against the spirit of St. Louis as he tried to take off. Uh, he asked Ann Murrow, to marry him in 1929, the whole world was speculating about their, their nuptial plans. The rumor had it that Lindbergh's wedding would take place in late June at the Morrow Summer Cottage in North Haven, Maine. One Monday afternoon in late May, a small group of family and friends was invited to attend a charity event hosted by the bride's mother at her Inglewood, New Jersey home. After lunch, they were surprised to discover that they were all guests at a wedding. The understated affair was over in a flash. So what's happening here is this, this big uh, um, 
public interest in them. And by the time the press got wind of the secret marriage, they had slipped away on a 38-foot honeymoon yacht that Lindy had purchased a week earlier. The owner of Elko Boatworks in New Jersey resisted the free publicity as long as his professional ambitions would allow, but finally gave reporters a very detailed description of the aviator's new yacht. The honeymooners were tracked from New London to Provincetown by land, sea, and air, and this is 1927, in an effort to thwart positive identification, the Lindberghs broke marine law by covering the name of the vessel in a piece of canvas. Newspapers all over the world carried a daily account of the little boat's movements. They were spotted off the Isle of Shoals on June 6 by two New York press planes. And the next day, they tied up for gas and provisions at Hartley Philbrick's Fish Wharf in York, Maine. And try as he might, Hartley could not engage Lindbergh in meaningful conversation. While they were loading supplies up in relative silence, a 13-year-old girl recognized Lindy and ran off to spread the word at the town's high school graduation celebration. Within minutes, more than 100 people crowded onto Philbrick's Wharf to get a snapshot of the elusive aviator. Ann Lindbergh remained inside the cabin until the Moet was safely offshore. So then they went on to Cape Porpoise, and uh, it goes on and on about him, but he was he was quite, uh, he was very much in the public eye at that time. Uh, he, his son, firstborn son was kidnapped and murdered in 1932. He lost public favor uh, because of his opposition to the U.S. involvement in World War II, but he changed his views after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and he actually flew many celebrated combat missions in the Pacific Theater. Would have been interesting to have him around today. Okay, so we got off track a bit, but let's look at uh, very important it would, for picnic party time. There was an ad May 20th, 1970, Lewiston Evening Journal, you could get suntan lotion for 99 cents, and that was an 8-ounce IGA brand suntan lotion. And this is when you rub that lotion on to try to get a tan, when you wanted to make it work. Pork chops were 73 cents, and that was a 2.5-pound average package. And chuck steak was 53 cents a pound. Frankfurt's were 73 cents a, a package. You could have a cookout real cheap. Uh, bananas were 2 pounds for 29 cents. Potato chips, an IGA 14-ounce package for 49 cents. This information is so important. What else do we see that was charming from this day? Sampson supermarkets. Look at where they were located. Auburn, Livermore Falls, Wilton, Farmington, Mexico, Lewiston. I wonder if they're around today. I don't think they are. They had the same kind of thing. They had a big price wars of pork chops for 63 cents a pound. The staff... Charcoal was 99 cents. Of course, everybody's got a propane barbecue today. 1892, on this day, uh, the forecast was uh, for New England was rain, was slightly warmer, easterly gales becoming variable, and clear weather was reported in New York at 50 degrees. Boston was raining at 45 degrees on May 20th, 1892. That's the That was the forecast, but what it was really going on uh, was the, the blizzard in the Midwest, this is via tele, telegraph, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin's a blinding snowstorm. They had uh, heavy, heavy snow. Hanover, 
Hanover, New Hampshire, May 20th, 1892. Five inches of snow had fallen this morning up to 11 o'clock, and the storm was still raging with no sign of abatement. They noted that the uh, temperature is not low enough to injure the fruit, but many trees may be broken by the accumulation of snow on the leaves and branches. Out of Iowa, they talked about the snowstorm. It had become a blizzard with a strong northwest wind. The storm on top of the flood just experienced here seems to banish all hope of crops this year. Through Massachusetts, Montpelier, Vermont had half an inch of snow. Keene, New Hampshire, one inch of snow covered the ground. Three inches at Dublin. Of course, they're up at like 1,300 feet. Monadnock was covered white, and there were six inches of snow in Chesterfield, New Hampshire. May 20th. They went on and on. Uh, Concord had, had uh, four inches of snow. And the southbound freight train from Woodsville came into Franklin, covered with three inches of ice and snow. Isn't that something? Some local news from 1892. Deputy Sheriff William Perkins has seized two lots of liquor at the Grand Trunk Depot in Paris. One lot was two quarts of alcohol, the other five or six gallons of whiskey billed as extracts to a grocery dealer. Mr. Perkins has made several seizures lately. Speaking of seizures, John Garland has had a shock of paralysis. He's quite feeble. And clerk of the courts, Austin, has been confined to his bed by sickness for nearly a week. Can you imagine today if it was newsworthy if somebody's confined to their bed? It'd be half the population. Mr. Isaac Mason of Chesterfield recently had two cancers drawn from his face. John Morrison of West Farmington also had one drawn from his lip at the same time. And that's something we don't do today. We don't go get cancers drawn, do we? Fountain Hodgkins of Bar Harbor, a boy of 13, fell backward from a wharf Thursday afternoon, a distance of 15 feet. I wonder if they got out there and measured it. He struck on a ledge, badly cutting his face. Any other news? J.W. Delano's stable floor at Mapleton, Maine, gave way one night recently, letting his cow and horse into the basement. And there's some some injury there. We're not going to read it. It's pretty gruesome. Uh, two brothers, John Davidson and Joseph Davidson, 18 and 20 years old. They were arraigned in Farmington Municipal Court for larceny. They're from Canada. They'd been working in a toothpick factory at Strong, Maine. They took the day off, went to Farmington, they visited the store of Harley Greenwood, and they asked to look at revolvers. Hey, Harley, show us your guns. Mr. Greenwood showed them the goods, and they purchased one. They paid for it, and they left the store. Then Mr. Greenwood's clerk began replacing the revolvers and found that two were gone instead of one. The case was placed in the hands of Sheriff Gould, who found the boys in a store in Farmington Village where he arrested them and obtained the stolen property. Judge Chandler imposed a fine of $9.16 and costs $5.84 each. Joseph Davidson settled, but his brother John was committed to jail until payment. And that's the way justice was dealt out in those days. Uh, we have a story out of Bangor. Now, this was the dentist... The Bangor News tells of some queer experiments that were recently made by a Bangor dentist 
who saw a sparrow collide with an electric light wire and a shock from which felled him to the ground where he lay until the dentist picked him up and barely able to move his wings. The gentleman breathed into the sparrow's mouth and let him go. As the shock was not a very bad one, the bird was soon able to fly, but he again returned to the dangerous locality and the result was another shock, much worse than the first. When the bird fell, he was apparently lifeless, but the dentist took him to the office and began an experiment. He at first resorted to artificial respiration as before, and then he injected in the bird's flesh aromatic spirits of ammonia and poured a few drops diluted with water down the sparrow's throat. He then put him in a dry closet and gave him some clear water after a few minutes. When placed in the closet, the bird's body was nearly cold, but the treatment proved so effective that in less than an hour he was able to fly as well as ever and was liberated. Kind of wonder if he just set the bird aside, if he would have been all right. The French-Canadian papers of Quebec continue to bewail the French-Canadian emigration to this country at Sorel in one day, 250 tickets were sold to persons going to the States. In the parishes below Quebec, the number going exceeds all previous records. A great out migration from Quebec to New England at Levis, a concentrating point, 1,500 persons per week take the train for the United States. At Sherbrooke, another concentrating point where the Grand Trunk Railroad gets big loads from Maine, the exodus is even more remarkable. They come from the North Shore and from the South Shore. The whole province is being emptied of people. A Quebec contemporary says the, the cures are alarmed at the extent of the exodus, and so are the local banks and storekeepers. The clergy have done their best to dissuade the people from, from going to New England, and missionaries like Father Dugas have left nothing undone to persuade them to go to the Canadian Northwest. But the stream continues to flow in undiminished volume. Isn't that something great? Great outflow from Quebec to Maine. Fort Sullivan Acting Secretary Grant of the War Department has sent to the House with favorable recommendations the draft of a bill providing for the restoration to the War Department for military purposes at Fort Sullivan, the military reservation on Moose Island, Maine, which was recently turned over to the Interior Department for disposition according to law. I think that's Eastport. Let's look at our main honorary mammal of the moment. These are the rare swimming wolves that eat seafood. Unlike their interior cousins, the coastal wolves of Vancouver Island live with two paws in the ocean and two paws on land. They move like ghosts along the shorelines of Canada's Vancouver Island, so elusive that people rarely see them lurking in the mossy forest. British filmmaker Bertie Gregory was one of the lucky ones. He saw coastal wolves, also known as sea wolves, in 2011. There's something about being in the presence of a coastal wolf. They just have this magic and aura about them. So he did a documentary for National Geographic, put it up on YouTube. 
Uh, coastal wolves are a unique predator and they're hunting in an absolutely epic landscape, said Gregory. The uh, island's roughly the size of Maryland and its remote western fringes are still a wild frontier in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, this fellow studied the carnivore's unusual lifestyle for nearly two decades and he shared some intriguing facts about the little seen population of gray wolf. There are two populations, mainland coastal wolves and coastal island wolves, the latter being the focus of his quest. The mainland coastal wolves are every bit as coastal, although they do eat less seafood compared to those on the islands. Unlike their inland cousins, the coastal island wolves are, are entirely dedicated to the sea. Their genes prove it. Collectively, coastal island wolves have distinct DNA that sets them apart from interior wolves, according to a study in, uh, done in 2014. Although such genetic differences within wolves is not uncommon, discovering it in an area as small as the west coast of Vancouver Island is. They have huge ranges that are hundreds of miles in area and they're capable of crossing many types of natural barriers including small bodies of water. People usually associate wolf meals with elk or deer but these guys are practically pescatarians with salmon accounting for nearly a quarter of their diet. Beyond that, they forage on barnacles, clams, heron eggs, seals, river otters, and whale carcasses. They talk about them being excellent swimmers. They live with two paws in the ocean, two paws on land. When hunting for food, sea wolves can swim miles between islands and rocky outcrops to feast on seals and animal carcasses found on the rocks. Our furthest record of their swimming abilities is to an archipelago 7.5 miles from the nearest landmass. They're about the size of a German shepherd. They're smaller than gray wolves in other parts of the country. The interior wolves are about 20% bigger than they are. Maybe like a Great Pyrenees, they say. Additionally, they're often reddish brown in color. So there's a lot of controversy in Maine about the presence of uh, wolves native here, that or whether they're back with a breeding population. They've quite a few uh, videos circulated recently online, and they analyze the scat from one of these wolves they've seen locally in Maine, and they they found it to be 84% uh, Eastern wolf DNA, and according to the Maine Department of uh, inland fisheries and wildlife and all that stuff they say no it's not enough wolf to be pure wolf so i guess you need more than 85 percent to be pure these days well that's our podcast for today it was quick enough let's look at the weather forecast for today saturday may 20th 2023 a slight chance of showers before 2 p.m then rain mainly after two about a tenth and a quarter of an inch possible but saturday night tonight we're going to have rain thunderstorm and then the wind gusting up to 25 miles per hour and then one to two inches of rain. Boy, I'll get your grass growing. Uh, for Sunday, we're looking at a 30% chance of rain, but then becoming mostly sunny after 8 a.m. with a high near 73. So there's our pick of the, of the weekend. All next week, sunny and highs in around the 60s. And uh, that's right every day right through to Friday. So we've got a great forecast looking out in the week ahead. 
that was our podcast for today. Until next time, this is Down East Bike wishing you and your loved ones a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you. Scotia town We couldn't rise up But we could sure get down By day I worked for Arden down In Irish town At night at the Legion I was fooling around We were sticking the farm out Sticking the farm out Sticking the farm out yeah. We were sticking the farm out Sticking the farm out Sticking the farm out yeah. In the morning I felt sick in that ditch, the pipe exploded to the tree. Arden and Carl just gave me a look and asked what was wrong with me. Well, it's nothing that I know an export it won't cure. And a trip to the Legion Hall doesn't look like much to me. It is the finest of dancing halls where I go sticking the Somebody to sign you into 